You're listening to The Fox, a podcast novel written and read by Arlene Radaski. Chapter 21, Jana, 82 AD, March, April. My body ached from our anxious and hurried lovemaking. We had fallen together as soon as we were alone. I must leave when the sun rises, he said. His hand caressed my hair and my leg was strewn over his bare thighs. I wanted to never have the warmth of his body leave me again. You are just returned from a difficult journey, I said. Must you go again so soon? By moonlight, filtering through our small window, I saw a look I had never seen before on his face. His head seemed to sink into his body and his brow creased. A light dimmed in his eyes. If it were in my power to change our world right now, I would make it stop here, he said. With you in my arms, the smell of lavender in your hair and my need for you sated. I do not have those powers. I am afraid, Jana, the Golagumart, and I will love you forever. But I am afraid I cannot protect you and Chrissy. I have seen what happens to those captured. Our people cannot rest until our future is secure. We're going to be in a fight for our land and our lives. Our children's 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 lives. His heart raced under his breast as he clutched me even closer. I felt his fear, but after a few breaths, his heart raced for another reason. However, he said with a smile creeping back into his eyes, I have a few moments to spare. We do not have to leave at this moment. His hands gently traced familiar paths on my skin, raising warm feelings deep inside me. Let me remind myself of your body. His hands stopped on the side of my chest. Jana, I feel bones on you I have not felt before. Are you not eating? I, I worried for you. It was hard to concentrate on my life when I was wondering if you still lived. I will be better now. I hoped that was true, for even now, with his hands, fingers, and mouth at my breasts, and my breath quickening in anticipation of the coming pleasure, I could feel the serpent just under my skin. I arched to his fingers and thrusts, and prayed he would chase it away from me, if only for one night. We left early the next morning. On the way out of our valley, we stopped to ask Rostin to join us. Laverne knew the druids would support and vouch for his truthfulness if the king questioned his story. Those who knew Laverne knew he was an honorable druid and man. Rostin gathered his things quickly, and we went on to Rona's, moving as fast as possible. The chieftains allowed their druids to take ponies. We did not have the luxury of time. Rona was waiting for us. I have sent word to Morag and Kora. They will join us on the way. We would have to double back if we went to their clan, and my grandson rides like the wind when no one impedes him. He carries my message and my ring. Their chieftain will let them come. My gut tells me we must make good time with this missive, Laverne. Have you seen anything in your dreams about this event? Laverne asked. Rostin leaned in to hear her answers. I have seen a battle, Rona said. I do not know when or where, but it is coming. We must hurry to tell the king your knowledge. We traveled quickly for the next three days. Nathrekian joined us. My mind has been unsettled for days. I could not wait at home without knowing, so I decided to come without bidding to your village. It is fortunate we met on the road. 
He turned to Rona, his gray hair floating in the breeze. The air itself carries tension, he said, his ever-moving arms swinging with his words. His eyes took us in and measured our response. We nodded in agreement. We stopped only to rest the horses and hunt rabbits for our evening meals, and spent most of the ride in silence. Conversation about the scenes of the countryside and treatments for unfertile animals seemed out of place to me. I concentrated on imagining what the king would do when he heard Laverne's news. When words were exchanged, it was in a quest to find the best way to draw the gods and Marigna's attention to us. We must have their ears turned to us now. The gods and goddesses must not be allowed to carry on as usual, Laverne said. We must decide the best way to get their attention, this Beltane. Rostin answered, Maybe Firtha has a new prayer that will capture the gods' attention. I closed my eyes at the mention of her name. I was not looking forward to seeing her. We may have to cut all our sacred oaks to raise a fire that will reach the heavens, I said. I was so innocent of the gods' needs. We traveled to the end of the great glen and turned east, toward the rising sun. One more day in travel, and we came to the valley of the king Calgacus. Gray boulders were molded to form a wall, topped with a fence of logs. We could not see over it, even sitting on our ponies. Through the partially open gate I saw many lodges. Naked men, skin-dyed blue, guarded the wall, ready to close the gate if needed. Laverne rode up to the gate but was stopped by the tip of a sword held by one of the heavily muscled guards. "'I am the druid Laverne,' he said. "'I am ordered by the king to come. I have a message for him.' "'Wait!' we were told. One of the guards jumped off the wall and out of our sight. I listened in curiosity to the noises behind the gate. I heard people laughing and talking, all busy with the chores that filled our daily lives. I felt less like a stranger here, for they lived like us. Dogs chased chickens and men laughed. Mothers called to children. Smoke rose over the wall. Home fires lighted to chase the damp, chilled air. Noise and the odors of life floated around us. As word of our arrival spread, eyes peeked around the gate. I matched them to the faces of curious children. I inhaled deeply as I missed Chrissy. I was tired and sore from sitting on my pony for so many hours. I wanted to dismount. Sitting on the back of this beast was torture as thin as I was. Although I wore several layers of clothing and my heavy cloak, I was cold and needed to pee. If the guard did not come soon, I would go into the surrounding woods and relieve myself. Just as I stretched and leaned over to tell Laverne and Rona that I would be absent for a moment, a chariot came crashing around the far corner of the fence. In it stood a wild man, long blonde hair flying, his mouth open to show white teeth centered in a face stained blue. He screamed the battle cry and waved his sword over his head while his driver and one other man stood behind him. Following him were nine mounted warriors, all armed and naked, bodies dyed blue. They rode close to one another in sacred groups of three. My pony started but held. He wanted to join the race, but obeyed my commands. My heart thudded like a festival drum at the sight of the king and his guard coming toward us at full speed. If his goal were to impress us, he succeeded with me. They rode past, and just before they turned and slipped from our sight, they pulled up at the opposite corner. After much cheering and jostling among themselves, one of the mounted men slid down and held out his reins. King Calgacus climbed out of the chariot and onto the pony's back. 
The rider he replaced stepped onto the chariot. The king and two of the mounted guards came to us in a fast trot, while the rest of the cadre and his chariot turned the corner towards the back of the village. As they came closer, I saw that the two guards behind him were women. They were so well-conditioned, tall, slim-waisted, with muscled legs and shoulders, that their stained blue bodies blended in with the men on the charge. Their long blonde hair bounced on their backs in heavy braids. They carried the same shields, longswords, and spears the men carried. They rode proud, and I knew they would protect the king with their lives. I had seen female warriors, but none so strong and none stained fully blue. This display of the king's guard and battle practice gave me hope that the king would be ready to accept Laverne's news and go to war with the Romans. The men on the fence who had joined in on the battle cry grew quiet as the king rode closer. I saw their respect in the way they stood tall before him. A lathered pony, chest straining with his breathing, was now upon us, King Galgacus on his back. His face was a study of concentration. His body glistened with the sweat of one who had worked hard. I admired him as he came closer. He had no extra flesh. Arms, abdomen, and legs well-muscled, and the look of health emanated from him. He peered into our group until he saw Laverne, and then with a nod of his head he turned and looked to the top of the wall near the gate. I was surprised to see his druidess, Fertha, standing there, her face just showing from under her white hood over the top of the fence. She turned to face the back of the village, and the king kicked his pony to move in through the gate. His guards motioned us to follow. Our ponies fell into step after theirs and started into the fort. I was last in line, and just before my pony crossed the worn path of the gate, I pulled back and stopped. Though surrounded by noise from all the king's people as well as the animals in the fort, I shivered as all sound was instantly gone from my ears. I looked through wavering air. Confused and not knowing what was about, I spun my pony around, ready to run out of the fort. A shaft of clear light shined on a scene in front of me. In the front line of trees, across the road leading into the fort, I saw them. The oak was heavy with ravens. Its branches bobbed with their weight, and its new leaves fluttered with the stretching and unfolding of their many wings. They sat quiet and watched me with night-black eyes, almost invisible in their blue-black bodies. The sun glistened on preened feathers. Why had my animal host shown itself to me in such a way? I watched for a moment longer, their eyes unblinking, when I saw movement on the ground. The pair stepped from behind the raven-filled tree. She was young and timid. Her eyes darted about, looking for danger, body tensed and ready to run at an instant. She carried more blonde-colored hair than copper, accented with snow-white tips. Small, when she crouched in the grass under the oak, it hid all but her face and twitching ears. He was royal. As large as a hunting dog, the male fox stopped, his body one step in front of his mate. He turned and nipped her gently on her neck. She nuzzled his fur. As he sat, he laid his white-tipped, flame-colored tail across her back, claiming her as his. His chest was not as white as hers, showing the yellowing of age and life in the forest. Sunlight glinted off the deeper copper color of his back. He looked up at the tree filled with ravens and then back down at me. 
I knew the king's foxes were large and not often seen. They were wary of men. I sat quietly filling my eyes. Then the male stood and barked, and the female disappeared behind the tree. He looked up into the tree at one very large raven that seemed to be the leader, yipped, and then the sky grew dark over me as they rose together and flew over the rooftops of the fort. My eyes followed until they were out of sight. I turned back, and the fox faced me. He walked out of the long grass to the road and dipped his body into a long stretch as if bowing to me. He took no notice of the people or noise around me and then calmly turned to lope into the woods, following his mate. I sat in a prayer of gratitude while the sound became normal around me again. It seemed no one else had seen what I had seen. Everyone carried on with what they were doing before. I shook my head in wonder. It was a powerful sign from the gods. Following the direction my com of my companions, I started my pony after them, my eyes still filled with the splendor of the sight. I passed a long row of lodges, all built in the round form as ours. Coming to the end of the row, my pony took one step around the corner and neighed to a group of ponies standing in front of a dwelling. Laverne's pony was among them. A child reached up and took my reins as I slid down and walked into the lodge. Its main room contained three fire pits, all in use. Over one, tended by a small boy turning the spit, cooked the full body of a boar. The boy had to jump back often. The flames that shot up when the fat from the animal dripped into the fire came close to burning him. The other two fires had large pots, stirred by young women. An older woman was making her way back and forth, from one pot to the other, from one fire to another, adding vegetables and roots to the pots and pinching the crisping skin of the boar. "'Don't let this burn, boy, or you will be sleeping outside with the pigs tonight. Girl, bring more herbs here. We need more flavor in this pot,' she yelled across the room. Five large tables circled the room. All were in use. Some where women chopped onions and herbs for the stews in the pots, and others— where there were women who slid loaves of fresh, dark rye bread off baking planks. One table was piled high with mugs for mead. Many are coming to this feast, I thought. Many came every evening, as this looked like a well-practiced dance by all here. Laverne and the others were standing in front of a large chair in the center of the lodge. In it sat the king, dressed in a finely woven blue shirt and trousers. His clothing seemed to blend in with the woad blue of his dyed skin. A bronze pin fashioned into a large cluster of mistletoe closed his cape. The pins painted golden-green leaves and white berries caught my eye. Finley would have loved this, I thought. He would have asked the king if he could hold it to better look at its fineness. The king spoke. So, Druid, it is as I expected. The Romans are coming to us. Were you able to find out how long before we will see them trampling our fields? The noise around the room stopped as if by an order from the king. All eyes focused on Laverne. They are building forts as they come, Laverne answered. I was told their general, Agricola, wants to build a line that will not be crossed before he comes further. They may not come this year, but the Romans are coming. Hmm, the news is bad as I feared. We will have to stop him. He is foolish to think he will have an easy time taking our land. The only good news to come from you is that we have time to prepare. We have time to raise the army and move them to the spot I will fight, said Calgacus. 
I have ridden over and mapped this country and know the best mountain pass to take a stand. I have planned a long time for this. My druidess told me we would have to go to war. She has seen it often in her dreams. She has prayed for a way to capture the ears of the gods. We will be victorious over the Romans and will win and keep our lands free from all invaders. At this he raised his hand, heavy with rings on every finger, and waved to one of his guards. Call in Tirlach. We must talk to him. He will lead the training of all the warriors promised to us by the clans. A tumult grew around us. All the warriors at the tables were standing on the benches or on the tables yelling battle cries. Those coming in late were told the news and joined in on the scene. It seemed some were looking at our little group with distaste. We were the harbingers of bad news, and I began to wonder how safe we would be if they decided to come at us. I am here as commanded. The man at the door was two hands taller than the king. His dirt-streaked face wore lines of the years of experience, and heavily-browed eyes took in the room at a sweep. He carried a spear, and from his belt hung a short and a long sword. The battle cries turned into a cadence of calling a name. Tirlock, Tirlock, Tirlock. Tirlock raised his spear, and the hall filled with the roar of men ready to fight to their death for him. Warriors, he said. His voice was deep, but he deliberately did not raise it above the din. He waited. As men noticed him, they grew quiet. He continued, We do not fear the Romans. We will go to war and win. We are stronger and fight for our land. Our land. It is our land, not theirs. They will regret bringing the battle to us for the rest of their short lives. He began pounding the butt of his spear on the ground, and others followed by banging their spears or swords against tabletops. The walls around us began to shake. The king raised his hand, and the noise stopped again, this time by king's order. "'You have done well, Druid,' he said. "'You and your companions are welcome at my tables for the meal.' Behind us, men talked again. We bowed, turned, and walked to a table close to the door. The king's men sat near him, the honored at his table. We sat where we could escape the long night's festivities as we planned to start back home at sunrise. The room continued to fill with people. Look, said Roston in a voice that spoke with inexperience. That man, wearing a golden torque, the king wears only a bronze, but his is gold. We watched as a tall man, braided hair hung over a red cape that matched the king's, walked to him and nodded his head. When he turned, we saw a similar pin of mistletoe closing his cape over his left shoulder. "'He owns many fields and sheep,' said Uliam. "'That is Malcolm. He has men who come in to trade with my village. He is the brother of the king and carries the purse of the army.' "'It seems,' Nathrikian said, his hands strangely still, "'he spends the purse of the king on himself as well.' "'Be careful, Wolf,' warned Rona. "'There are many who listen for words such as yours, just for the pleasure of reporting them to the king and watching the beheading and mounting of the severed heads on the fence. We want to take all of you home on the morrow, not just your body, your head left to decorate the gate of this fine fort. The king would not kill a druid, would he? Both Morag and Cora asked the question in unison. I wondered if they often spoke as twins and finished each other's sentences. 
The king will do what is necessary to keep his warriors and people happy. If a druid must die, then a druid will die, said Rona. A chill crept into my heart with those words. They carried the roasted boar to the king's table, where, with his sword, he separated the beast with one stroke to the cheers of those around him. He took up a short blade to cut the smaller pieces and filled plates with meat as he carved. Also, wooden bowls of vegetables and mugs of mead were passed around. Mugs of mead were refilled from buckets carried around the room. As the overfilled platters of food passed, we stabbed our portions and piled them on the table in front of us. Everyone seemed to enjoy the food. The mood was light even though the news we carried here could bring death to many warriors in this room tonight. Music started at the back of the lodge, and two men sidestepped those carrying food and mead to stand in the space directly in the front of the king's table. One blew into a pipe, creating a tune, and the other beat a drum while singing. I recognized a song about a battle long ago with a giant monster of the land that Belle and Marigna fought with. The monster fled into a lake, and it is still told that she raises her head and becomes visible at times. Many have sworn to seeing her. We sang the same song at home, ate the same food, wore the same clothing. Now we feared the same enemy. I prayed our people would be victorious in battle. If we followed this king and the gods heard our prayers, we would be victorious. I believed it to be so. The smoke in the room grew thick. Men added peat to keep the fires burning through the night's festivities. I was tired from the long journey, the ride, this day's advance, and wanted to find a quiet place where I could tell Laverne about the animals I saw earlier. Foxes and ravens gathered in and around an oak was a powerful sign for us. I wanted to discuss it with him until we understood it. I looked to the door, readying myself to leave to find clean air, when the figure appeared. I started, unsure of what it was, my eyes unclear from the smoke. Rona was next to see it. Nathrakian stood when Rona touched his shoulder and directed his gaze to the apparition. "'Who are you?' he asked in a voice that drew the other eyes to him, and then to the white, hooded, caped man in the doorway. "'Fertha requires your attendance,' the figure said. "'Whose attendance?' asked Uliam. "'All who rode in with the fox today.' We followed him outside. The night air was crisp and cool after the room filled with smoke and the body odors of men who worked hard. I took a deep breath. The newly green leaves and turned fields left an odor of spring. It was not yet Beltane, however the signs were there, even this far north. The figure led us to the back wall, where a small opening let pedestrians through. I was a bit dizzy from the mead and lack of sleep, so I hung onto Laverne's arm. "'Where are we going?' asked Laverne. The cloaked man stopped and turned. "'We are going to the sacred stones. Bertha has had a vision, and she must share it with you. The way will be dark and rocky. I will carry a torch, so stay close.' He picked up a torch from the guard on duty at the opening of the fence, and we were outside the fort, walking into the trees. "'This is the path of the ancients,' he said, the path we walk on and the standing stones were both placed by the gods. We hold our most sacred ceremonies there. I seem to remember a storyteller's song about standing stones in this area, said Koraya. 
It is said the gods built them for man to use as a sacrificial altar for our ceremonies, said Morug. Oh, ouch, wait, I have tripped, said Rona. Nathrakian, please give me your arm to steady myself on these stones. I do not want to fall into the water. We had come to a stream. The robed druid seemed to float across, while we stumbled and bruised our feet as we clumsily walked from stone to stone to cross the shallow but cold and fast water. The forest opened up into a small meadow, and in the middle was a small circle of man-height stones. There was a large fire in the center, and I heard a multi-voiced hum coming from the stones. They seemed to move, waver in the firelight. We walked closer, and I saw eight swaying figures in white robes, just like the one leading us. The people in the robes held hands and made the shadows that seemed to give the stones movement. The robed figures sang the song I had heard. Our guide stopped just outside the ring of stones and whispered into the ear of one druid. The circle broke, and he walked into the ring. He motioned us to follow. I got to the ring, and again, just before I stepped in, I looked around the circle of trees behind us. I knew he watched. The fox I saw earlier was there and watched us. Bertha stood in her white robe on the other side of the ring. The fire between us bathed her in an orange light. Shadows danced on her body, created by the moving flames. I had not seen her at the evening meal, and I wondered what would keep her away from her king, especially when Laverne's news proved her right about the Romans. Now I knew. She had been here, preparing this ring, waiting for us to come. She watched us come into the circle and bade us to sit on the ground around the fire. As we sat, her eyes took us in. Her loose hair, red in the firelight, hung below her waist. Her hood hung down the back of her robe. The fire did not give enough light at that distance to see the color of her eyes. I remembered they were the blue color of water melted from ice. A band of beads circled her forehead and tied at the back of her head. Her sea eagle feather was attached, so it hung behind. She still wore the necklace of boar's teeth. I wondered if she were able to add to it from the boar that had become our evening meal. An alder staff was in her hand, one long enough to touch the ground at her bare feet and rise above her head more than two hands high. Lessons from Laverne about this tree flashed through my mind. He made his music pipe from it. It gave different dyes for our cloth. Some druids used it to help call in the spring. Maybe that's why she holds it for tonight. It's almost spring, almost Beltane. Unbidden, the memory came that it also called to the soul of the sacrificed human to come back to aid the living. A volunteer sacrificed human. The little I ate at dinner laid unsettled in my stomach. Small stones scattered on the ground dug into me. Uncomfortable, I shifted, hoping not to put a hole in my green dress. The hot fire burned my face while my backside was cold. I shivered and Laverne put his arm around me. I was able to settle down, and when I looked around the small, seated circle of fellow travelers, I saw they all had their eyes on Fertha. Rona lowered her eyes until she looked straight into mine. I saw a great strength there. I was glad she was my friend. Now you are here. Bertha said as she came closer to us. The humming stopped as soon as she started talking. 
Robed druids came closer to hear her words. Tell me what you found, Laverne. As I told the king, the Romans ready themselves to take our lands, to make us slaves or kill us. That is what they have done to the lands they occupy now. It is what they want for us. I stood in a camp of Roman warriors and have seen they have weapons and trained to kill us. She nodded. It is what I have told the king for many moons. I have seen it many times in my dreams. It is because we are weak. Do any of you know why we are weak? Bertha slowly looked into the eyes of all present. No one responded. We are weak because the gods ask us to give ourselves to them. We have stopped obeying that command. Yes, we learn what we can about nature and healing and other magic, but we have not given back all we should in payment for many years. My teacher was ancient when he taught me the arts. He told me we should never change them, but we have. She paused. We have become soft, and because of that we could lose all we have, our lands and our families. We need to catch the ears of the gods again. Her staff pounded the ground in her agitation as she paced, walking around us quickly. We had to turn our heads to follow her footsteps. We must get back to the ways of the gods and goddesses. They gave me a vision, a vision of victory. I was told that if we come back to them fully, we could have what we want. We can have peace. She stopped pacing, and as the altar staff hit the ground in time with her every word, I trembled. I heard words tumble from her mouth but could not understand them. Voices from all those in cloaks around us uttered short, quiet sighs of agreement. She raised her staff to the sky. Gods and goddesses, listen to me. We will have a human sacrifice. A fearful rushing sound of unstoppable water and wind filled my ears. I closed my eyes and began to pray, my heart heavy with dread. I began to shiver. The snake awoke and raised its head again in my belly. Memories of my feelings, those that had told me of my shortened life, flooded my head. I was afraid, so very afraid. Please join me again for another chapter of The Fox by Arlene Radaski. Now enjoy the music of Steve McDonald's song, Wild Mountain Time, from his Sons of Summerlet album. His music can be found at www.etherean.com, who along with Steve have allowed me to use the music in my podcasts. Learn more about The Fox at www.radasky.com.
Among the bloom and 